Well, it's been a long time. We're going back to Zechariah tonight, our Old Testament minor prophets series. We're in the book of Zechariah. We're in chapter number 9, chapter number 9. We're looking at the theme of a coming conqueror. Jesus is coming back, by the way. He's coming back as a conqueror. Let me just give a disclaimer to our sermon tonight by telling you, if you don't know Jesus, come. If you don't, need, if you don't know Jesus, I beg you to come. Come bow before the Lamb before you have to cower before the lion. Today is the day of salvation. This is the accepted hour. If you don't know Jesus, come, because He's coming again. And He's coming in wrath and in great judgment. The Bible teaches us in these first nine verses of this coming conqueror. I'm going to ask you if you found your place and you're able to stand with your copy of the Scriptures open. And let's honor and reverence the reading of God's holy and errant, infallible, inspired word together. The Bible says in verse 1, The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the miter of the street. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he shall smite her power in the sea. And, he shall, and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron shall, for her expectation, shall be ashamed and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite." And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. And the object of our text tonight, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt of the fold of an ass. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the high honor and privilege to proclaim the truths of the word of God that you've laid upon our hearts. God, our assignment's overwhelming, but we trust you. God, I am nothing and you're everything. Would you help me to decrease and you increase? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. God, use us tonight for your glory, and we'll give you praise. We ask all of it in Jesus' strong name, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. The nation of Israel, and especially the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, is frequently in the news even in these days. And people are asking, what is the future of that ancient city? 
questions like these. Can the Jews actually hold on to Jerusalem? It's, it's a good question when the Palestinians say, that's our land. The Jews were never here. We were here first. It's a good question when the Arabs say, it is their land. When the Muslims say, it is their land. Will she be attacked again? Well, the answers to these questions and many, many more are found right here in this great prophecy of Zechariah. This chapter begins with the conquest of Alexander the Great who consolidated and expanded his power in, in the Greek state unlike any who had preceded him. I mean, it was truly unmatched if you Learn of what he did. If you watched his battles, his conquest was amazing, but he tragically died at either age 32 or 33 or somewhere in there. You know how he died, this greatest conqueror of the world? Many labeled him. He died by overconsumption of alcoholism. He drank too much and died. Isn't that a tragic end? It's a horrible end. Just a young man who seemed like he had the world by the hand. Many historians will say there was none greater than Alexander the Great. But the truth of the matter is, as powerful and as seemingly unstoppable as his conquest was, and that's the first eight verses in this text, you'll find there is none who could even compare even Alexander to the coming conquest of Almighty God. None who can compare. And if all of that time feared Alexander the Great, my only question is, how much greater fear should strike the hearts of humanity over the coming conquest of Almighty God? If God be for you, who can be against you? Why did you say that? Because you need to make sure of whose side you're on tonight. Jesus is coming back. I've got good news for the nation of Israel. She's got more enemies than you can shake a stick at. But she's got a big brother. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to quote to you everything that I've covered in the previous eight chapters. And I want you to hear what God said concerning that city. I would tell you that God is for her. That God is for her and therefore no one could be against her. And if God is for Israel and he makes it very, very clear that he is in control of the destiny of that city. He said, I will have mercy upon her. He said, I am jealous for Jerusalem. My house shall be built and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall choose Jerusalem. He is their soon coming conqueror and king. He's coming. Every eye shall see him. He's not coming as a lowly lamb on a donkey. He's coming as heaven's ultimate warrior on a fiery white stallion. He's coming back to rule and reign, to put an end to all sin and wrong, to judge all unrepentant sinners. Let me say it one more time. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He's coming. Notice in verses 1 through 8, I know it's a lot of history. I'm going to try to fast forward through a lot of that. It's not that it's not worthy. I just want to get to the king coming. But he's coming, the Lord's coming, as a militant force. 
It is described to us in the book of Daniel. It's also seen here in these first eight verses. But it reminds us he's coming as a militant force to punish his opposition. Let me read these first eight verses again with you slowly. And they'll go through those. The Bible says the burden of the word of the Lord. And that word burden there it concerns the judgment of God. And knowing that God's coming in judgment is a tremendous heavy weight to those who are on the wrong side. It's a heavy weight. He said, in the land of Adrach and in Damascus shall be the rest thereof. And when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be towards the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heap up silver and the dust is as fine gold as a miner in the street. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and will smite her power in the sea. And he shall be devoured with fire. Eshkelon shall see it and fear Gaza. And fear and Gaza shall also see it. And be very sorrowful in Ekron. For her expectation shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. And his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp around my house, or about my house, because of the army, because of him that passeth by, because of him that returneth, and no oppressor, I love this, no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now I have I seen with mine eyes. And so, here in the text, the prophet is reminding us in the coming of the Lord will be as a militant force to punish his opposition. And he chooses the Grecian army. Zechariah gives us what you would call the march of Alexander the Great and his fearsome or dreaded army. He would destroy many of these cities that we just read to you. He came as he come into the land of Palestine. One thing's for certain. What he accomplished was accomplished in record time that no army had ever been able to do before him. And he left no evidence or threat behind him. You can read that in history. The word again, as I said, burden refers to the judgment of God. The Grecian army was unwittingly God's instrument of judgment in thrashing pagan cities who opposed God. All the way until they reached the city of Jerusalem. We need to get this in our mind. God never allows paganism to prosper. Never. Our world's eat up with it. Something's got to happen because God doesn't tolerate it. God judges it. And that's why we feel such a heavy, heavy weight in our world today is because there's so much paganism wickedness, evil, and unbelief. We need a siren. We need a loudspeaker. We need to remind the world that Jesus is coming back to destroy all sin. And unwittingly, the Grecian army was an instrument in the tool, or an instrument and a tool in the hand of the living God. He destroyed it. He's going to do it again. We need to understand that. But what I'm trying to say tonight is that when he come to Jerusalem, because he's making his track there, 
He entered in, but he never harmed the people or the city. Who can explain that? Are you telling me that Israel is exempt from evil and wickedness and worldliness and paganism? Throughout history, she has had evil, evil kings, more than good kings. More times than not, the holy city of God was set up as shrines to pagan gods. God looked from heaven and saw his city set up of shrines of pagan gods. Jesus later in his earthly ministry took his own disciples in Caesarea Philippi down to the devil's living room before the gates of hell and promised them right there in a pagan stronghold that the gates of hell should never prevail against the church. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. He's a jealous God. His eye is set upon his children. Keeping in context with the text tonight, he has already pledged his love and his loyalty to the nation of Israel. He's already set her destiny. He's reminded us that he would have mercy upon them. He's jealous for them. His house would be built there far greater than Zerubbabel's house far greater than the temple that was built in Herod's day or even in Solomon's day. There's a, yet, a better day yet to come. Remember, the latter glory shall come. He reminds us, they came, they entered, but the Grecian army did no harm. I can tell you that only God can protect his people in a time of great judgment and at the same time punish opposition. We see it with the children of the Hebrews. Back in Egypt day, there's always a land of Goshen. God always takes care of his children. Now, I'm going to quote a historian tonight. Now, I know there's, there's a lot of question about history, a lot of bias there. But a respected historian named Josephus talked about what I just shared to you. I've taken a lot of time because I think it's important. He recounts this very event and see it was prophecy concerning Zechariah. But when Josephus came along, it was history and he recorded it. And according to this historian, God spoke to the high priest of Israel and told him when he saw the Grecian army, Alexander the Great, approaching that city in a mighty conquest, he said, dress in your priestly attirement and those with you in white and go out to meet him. I don't know that I'd want to be that priest that day. But he put on his priestly attire. And in the front of his attire, on his chest, bared the name of the Lord God of Israel. And when he went out before the Grecian army, again, this is history, according to Josephus, when he went out there and those with him in robes of white to greet him, Alexander the Great, according to history, bowed down before him. Made some of his men mad. They were upset. It is recorded that one said, how dare you bow down before a Jewish high priest? And I love what the historian said was a direct quote from Alexander the Great. Listen to this. He said, I was not, I was not bowing before him. I bowed before the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. Now that's history, but it certainly correlates with this story, the prophecy of Zechariah. 
And so he come to punish opposition by the Grecian army, but greater truth is it was by God Almighty. And so although these conquests that you read about in the first eight verses, they're given to Alexander the Great in our history books, what they're teaching our children, and I get that, I understand that. But the Bible clearly teaches us the greater truth of history. It was not Alexander the Great as much as it was Almighty God. We need to understand that. The Bible says some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And by the way, this is a history book. It is his story. There is nothing that happens that does not pass through his hands first. It is through and by his perfect will. And so I want to share with you the truth of the matter. As we try to make it a little bit easier, there are those who trust in the name of the Lord our God. And there are those who trust in the George Washingtons of this world. There are those who trust in the Roosevelts of this world. I was, I was told earlier on that there are those who would put their hope and trust in human leaders. And we should, is what they said, but I, I don't see that. There are those who would put their trust in the Abraham Lincolns of this world. And I can go on down through all the list of our presidents and others would put their trust in the economy when it's strong or strong allies or foreign world powers and strong militaries. And I, I like all those things. I like strong leadership. I honestly think that we should have a strong economy and we should put people in place that do their very best to make sure our economy is as strong as it can ever be. I believe in global talks that lead to good, strong foreign allies. I, I believe in all of that. I believe we should have a military second to none. I believe in all those things. But that's not where my hope really lies. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But I'm going to remember the name of the Lord our God. There's my trust. Some of you look like you're still not convinced. God's got a way to convince you. Ask Gideon. You remember Gideon? God found him. Hiding, scared, tore all to pieces. Yeah, not that Gideon. He said, I'm right here. The one you just named after, son. Scared to death. Angel of the Lord found him hiding from the Midianite hordes. And the angel said, there you are, you mighty man of valor. I bet he went like this. Who's he talking about? I want you to go against the Midianite hordes that are thrashing Israel. Who, me? Comes up with an army of 30,000 men. And God said, uh-uh. You know the story. I'm just going to chop it up and dice it here. God finally said, when you got 300, that's about good enough. Oh, by the way, you, you don't need those assault rifles and bazookas and stuff. All you need is a Picture and a lidded torch. Are you kidding me? Why? So everybody knows it was not Gideon, but God who gives the victory. 
And so every time there's a victory, God is to be praised. That's the example. Again, it's his story, and that's what history is all about. He does that, why? To protect his own. He punishes the opposition at the same time he protects his own. He does that through divine providence. God is still on the throne. He still governs all the affairs of this world. It's all in his hands. That's why I told you this morning and challenging you in a brand new year, I don't know what 2022 holds. We could be living and facing times that COVID looks like a walk in the spring rain. It could be the greatest, enjoyable, liberating year we've ever had in our lives. Who knows? But really, none of that's our business. What matters, it's all in His hands. And I want to be faithful till He calls or till He comes. And there's no better and there's no safer place that you could be than in His hands. He's going to protect us. He's going to take care of us. And besides, if you're saved, what's the worst thing this world could do to you? Kill you and send you to heaven? Some of y'all just look at your shoes. You ain't been saved long enough. You ain't been living in this world long enough. I'm in Him. He's in me. And it's all in His hand. Nothing comes to us that doesn't pass through his hands first. Everything is either according to his direct will or his permissive will. What do you say about all that? It's far above my pay grade and rank. The only thing I know to say is God knows best. And God is pledged to take care of me. And that's what I'm going to trust. That's what he does. Even in judgment, God gives grace to the humble. He alone has the power to change hearts, change minds, and change the course of human history as he sees fit. By divine promise, those who are here Wednesday night know where to shout. He says at the end, in verse number 8 that I'll camp about mine house because of the army. I'm telling you, ain't nobody in the world wanting to be there when the Grecian army came with Alexander the Great. Unless... God was camped around. Aren't you glad? You remember Wednesday night, church? You remember? We've got a God that encamps around us. That's what the Bible says. He's encamped around my house. No oppressor shall pass through them anymore. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I will have mercy for I am jealous for Jerusalem. Let me take a little sweat off your brow in troubled times. If God said I am encamped about you, the house of God, and I'm thankful that he indwells me. My body is the house of God. I am encamped about you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Go to bed tonight and enjoy it because he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That means you'll never need him any longer than forever. I like that. He's encamped about us. God knows better how to take care of you than you can take care of yourself. So the Bible goes on to say he does this to protect his own and then we're going to get to the good stuff in verse number nine. He comes not as a militant force. That's the way the Jews wanted him the first time. They missed it. Then he's coming as the Messiah foretold. Look at this prophecy in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. The Bible teaches he's coming as the Messiah foretold. Hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ. God put it in the heart of the prophet 
to write down this wonderful verse. And we see his praise when he comes. The prophet tells the people of God to rejoice and to shout for the coming of the Messiah. He said for the people of God to shout. Why? Their king is coming. A king and a conqueror far greater than Alexander the Great. Almighty God is your coming conqueror and eternal king. This prophecy was partially, partially fulfilled on Palm Sunday. You remember that. When Jesus rode into the city on the donkey, they paved the way with palm branches, throwed their coats out to honor as a king would ride in or a, a war general being successful after a battle. They waved those palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Salvation is what they cried. That day, partially, this prophecy was fulfilled. They had rejoiced for their king had come. Be honest with you, that was a day to shout. That was a day to rejoice. Why? Because Christ came. The anointed one of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world came as a lamb. He came to make peace with God for our sins, our sins to atone in his own blood, to give us peace with God. It was a day to shout, a day to rejoice. I praise God that there was a first advent before the second advent. We deserve nothing. But the wrath, the vengeance, and the judgment of Almighty God. So when we think about this prophecy, if you've been introduced to the Lamb who bled and died for you, who took your place on an old rugged cross, if you know Him as your Messiah, your King, your Savior, you ought to shout. You ought to rejoice. He's delivered your soul from hell. By His own blood, you've been forgiven and washed clean. You ought to shout because He didn't have to. And the truth of the matter is He shouldn't have. But indescribable love, as John said, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that He spared not His own Son for the likes of us. We rejoice. We shout. You ought to get excited about it. Sure beats half the other stuff we get excited about and embarrass ourselves at. Shout and rejoice. Our King has come. See, Jesus came to bring peace. Alexander the Great came to bring war. But Jesus come to end the greatest war ever faced by man, and that's the war over our souls. Jesus took care of that on the cross of Calvary. The total fulfillment of this prophecy that I just read to you in verse number 9 will be when Jesus comes again. The first coming, He came as Savior. The second coming, He's coming as Sovereign. The first time He came, there was a cross in view. The second time He comes, there's a crown in view. He's coming with the diadem upon his head. He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And beloved, when he comes, that will be a day to rejoice and to shout if you're on the winning side. If you're on the wrong side, it's a day to weep and lament and sorrow. No wonder the prophet said, the great 
and the terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's return is defined by which side that you're on. If God be for you, who could be against you? Notice his person. The Bible describes him in this prophecy as being a just king. <laughs> My mind run immediately back to when Jesus was on trial. And a lost man named Pilate said, I find no fault at all in this man. <laughs> Can I tell you that there's not a one of us here that a lost man couldn't find a flaw in? Give a lost man a minute, he'll find things that you don't even know about yourself because he's been watching you. A lost man can find more fault in you than anybody else. Why? Because they're absent of the love of God that covers multitudes of sin and imperfection. They're looking for fault. And a lost man who had great power, prestige, and authority scrutinized the lovely Lord Jesus and said, I find no fault at all in this man. The Bible said he's a just king. The Bible teaches us that he's fully acceptable to God as the perfect, spotless, sinless son who is declared completely righteous. Now that is a king you can trust. I don't know about you, but I listen to when it comes time for political debates and new presidents, I listen and I watch till I'm about sick. I don't know about you, but I start out and I'll say, there's my man. And after about another debate, I'm going, there nah, ain't no way. A few more weeks in and I look to heaven and say, dear God, we don't even have a voice. I challenge you. Live by the book and see if anybody's represented Jews in your lifetime. I get discouraged. But this is a king I can trust. No fault at all. No fault at all. He's just. He's the sinless son of the living God. He's a just king. Why wouldn't you get excited? Why would you not shout and rejoice when we're going to have a king who will rule and reign over us in righteousness? There's no gray area about him. He's right. All the time, trustworthy. He's going to be leading and guiding and governing this world and all that are in it. Now, I'd like to go on record and tell you that's my king. As S.M. Lockridge said, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? I'll tell you what, if you don't, you ought to get to know him tonight. Notice his possession. He said he's coming. He's just. And boy, he comes bearing gifts. Greatest gift ever given. I spent a month in great passion to try to tell you the greatest gift to all humanity wasn't under the tree, it was on the tree. He comes bringing salvation. Isn't that the greatest thing he could ever offer? When he came to us, he come bearing the gift of salvation. It's only in him. It is the greatest gift to all of humanity. And because he is the only one who could and did fulfill the scriptures as the Messiah, he came, he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And as the little children's song said, he did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. It was to save is why he came. I think John 
3.16 and 17 says it best. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. Why would we not rejoice and why would we not shout over the Lord God Almighty sending forth His darling Son with the gift of salvation. If you've been saved tonight, you've got a reason to shout and rejoice. The Bible teaches us of His position. And we'll close. The Bible says lowly. He came the first time lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the fold of an ass. Lowly. That's at the first advent. That was His position. Here on the earth... I think I'm right when I tell you that Christ was never fully appreciated for who He was in the first advent. Would you say that's a fair statement? Never fully appreciated who He was. Now you know who He is. His true followers know who He is. It it bothers me I've taken you, in 13 years I've taken you through all four Gospels on Sunday morning. And in those Gospels, I'm troubled the way the crowds, the multitudes treated our Lord. See, because I've been blessed to know who He is. He's the Holy One of God. He's the one sent of God for my sin. He's the one, the lofty one, that the angels of glory never cease to praise. Man, I just, I might have a spell tonight. Did you ever put that in your mind? Around the throne, night and day, crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What kind of service could we have if we come in this place and just spent one hour covering our eyes, looking down, lifting up our hands, And continually crying to Him, the Holy One of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's who He is. The sinless Son of God. God the Son. Who came for the likes of me. Who in His power conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm no match for death. I'd never get up out of a grave. Hell would hold on to me. But on that third and glorious morning, somebody get excited tonight. He conquered them all. That's who he is. The exalted one of heaven. The one that is far above principalities, powers, and rulers. They certainly did not treat him that way. They did not receive him as such. They willingly chose to become the lowly Messiah, born in a cattle shed or a cave, laid in a manger, a feeding trough, raised in a despised little town by peasant parents, worked as a poor carpenter. He was despised and rejected of men. And yet the Bible said he still went around doing good. Boy, I'm glad you all weren't God. If you'd have came there and they'd have treated you as such, you'd have been lightning bolts hurled in every direction. Some of your own immediate family would be on shaky ground. But yet he did good. That's my favorite description of God. 
He still went around doing good. The way our world treated him. You know what he did? He fed hungry multitudes. They spit at him. They made fun of him. They cursed him. They rejected him. You know what he did? He healed all manner of sicknesses and diseases. They brought him to him and he healed them. They had demons. Troubling spirits. God cast them out. He healed people. He helped people. He saved people. He touched people. He went around doing good. That's what the Bible says. And he also presented kingdom truth that could free man's souls for eternity. Aren't you glad he come and consistently preached the gospel? I'm glad he didn't give up. And what'd they do? They arrested him. They tried him. They scourged him. Can I take it a step further? They tried to kill him. Most men couldn't survive that. And yet he opened not his mouth. And finally they crucified him. But they did not take his life. Why? They wanted to, but they couldn't. He said, no man has that power. But if I have the power to lay it down, I've got the power to take it up again. You know the rest of the story. They crucified him. That's not the way he was received. And there that lowly lamb of God demonstrated in those hours the greatest power the world has ever witnessed. The sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God bore the sins of humanity, took upon Himself, listen, the abandonment and the wrath of God. Can you give me a moment? I'm still troubled. I cannot fully understand the abandonment of God on the cross. I can't. All I know is that when God turned out the lights from 12 to 3, he turned his back on his son. They beat him, they whipped him, they scourged him, they manhandled him, they pierced him, they crucified him, and yet he opened not his mouth. And in the moment that the father abandoned the son, he cried out in pain and in agony that I do not have words nor a vocabulary or an understanding to describe to you what the son of God went through in that time of being abandoned by the father. The only thing I know is because of Jesus, my lamb, my substitute, my sacrifice. I'll never, I'll never have to know what made our Savior scream and cry in pain. But all those who reject Christ will understand full well, not for three hours, but for all of eternity. Abandon. Experience the wrath. What does that mean? He took your hell. Boy, what a debt. I'd still be there for all of eternity. What a debt. He took it and he conquered it. Paid in full. There on Calvary's cross, he took my place. Took my sin he took my shame, he tasted it, he experienced it, that I, who was bankrupt and impoverished in sin, could be saved, set free, and have a standing that's out of this world. What, what kind of standing? Before the Father, because of Jesus, I've been declared righteous. Just as if I'd never sinned. Wow! Can I tell you it gets better? He's made me an heir. 
I don't like to brag or anything, but I'm rich. My father owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. His coffers are rich, full, and he's made me an heir and a joint heir with Jesus. Now you understand why the prophet said, Rejoice, shout, thy king cometh. I pray that you would. I'm glad he did. I'm going to shout. I'm going to praise the Lord. We ought to praise the Lord that he's coming again. Well, I'm glad I don't have to be left in this mess. Anybody want to stay? <laughs> I'll be glad when I hear a trumpet. I'll be glad when there's a shout that'll wake the dead. I'm glad I'll get to leave it all behind. And I'm glad when all that's said and done that he says we're going back. You honestly think I'm going to leave all this in the hands of Satan, not on your life. It's mine. It's mine by right of control. It is mine by right of creator. He is the sovereign creator that stooped and formed and fashioned all that is. He's coming back. Behold, he will make all things new. Verse 10 now, and I'm hushing. Verse 10, which I'm not getting into tonight, moves from the golden age of the millennium without mentioning the church age in which we're living now. And a moment that bothered me. Zachariah, you've left something out here. What about the church age? The thought run to me, why did he leave that out? I mean, what does that say to us? Is that not time period of the church age in which we're living now? Isn't it important? Isn't it want worth mentioning? Well, sure it is. It's very important. But what it speaks to us and shows us tonight is just how short the church age in God's calendar of events. Between the first advent and the second advent, the church age is nothing more than a Blurt, a blip, a dot on God's calendar of events. So what do we do with that? <laughs> Run. Run to Jesus. Time is running back. Jesus is coming back. We're living in a wonderful age and period of grace. Grace that it is extended to all those who will come unto him. Favorite verse. All those who come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Shout, rejoice, your king has come. If you're saved, you can shout and rejoice in the full fulfillment of this prophecy. He's coming again and I'm on the winning side. But I'm here to tell you tonight, if you don't know Christ, come. Because I believe with all of my heart, our church age is almost, almost finished. I have too much evidence to point to me that we're living in the lengthening shadows of the last day. Today's the day of salvation. If you don't know him, please trust him. Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor to share your word. Thank you for the attention of your people and God most important. We trust in the operation of the Spirit of God that will draw men, women, boys, and girls unto you. For those that are lost, God save them tonight. And for those of us who are saved, Help us to get our house in order because the Lord's coming. Help us to rejoice in what you've done and help us to rejoice in what you're going to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.